This episode of The Homilist is brought to you by Ozark Christian College. For over 75 years, Ozark Christian College has been preparing students for ministry. Ozark's 15,000 alumni are serving in all 50 states and in 100 countries around the world, carrying the gospel to every part of the globe as ambassadors for Christ. For more on Ozark's residential and online degrees, visit occ.edu. Welcome to The Homilist. I'm your host, Jared Ellis. I appreciate you taking the time to listen. I hope that you find these conversations to be a source of encouragement, education, and even entertainment. If you want to dive a little deeper into The Homilist Podcast and get your hands on some exclusive content, check out thehomilist.com. My guest today is a powerhouse with a pen, authoring or co-authoring 12 books, three in 2018, and another one that will be released already this year. As the inaugural holder of the Butler Chair in Homiletics and Biblical Hermeneutics at Vancouver School of Theology, he teaches preaching, Bible, leadership, church history, and writing, with wonderful endorsements from Will Williman, Eugene Peterson, Sarah Coakley, and Nadia Bowles-Weber, this is, whether he likes it or not, my friend, Dr. Jason Bicey. So you've had, a lot of, you've had a lot of connection to him. Yeah, so my third son is named Will, and he baptized my first, and um, I inflict a lot of Williman on poor, unsuspecting Canadian students up here, so... Um, yeah, he's an amazing guy. Um, so I, I turned up at Duke in 1996 and um, kind of made it a point to follow him around. And uh, yeah, he's he's there's that weird arc, and you don't always go to every step on the arc from kind of a teacher to mentor to friend. And uh, I'm grateful that happened with him. Often, you know, one or the other of those steps blows up, and you you know. Get off the arc altogether. Um, uh, And there's a little bit of mystery in all of that. Like, you can't make yourself befriend somebody or like somebody or love somebody. And so some of that is kind of divine whimsy. And and I get, I mean, one of the themes that interests me is mentoring. I mean, I co-edited this book on Eugene Peterson and um, and another on uh, on mentoring. And I, I just think there's it's a, a kind of it's a special kind of friendship, and it requires uh, huge dexterity and a lot of grace on both sides. And anyway, uh, prattling on now, but I'm just really grateful for Will. He's an amazing person, um, and, and it's become a theme in my work. Like uh, I just did this clergy health book, and one of the things I argue is that churches, um, or really anyone who cares about a minister, the best thing you can do for that minister is to um, look after the quality of their friendships, see that they're getting serious time with their friends and and by friendships i don't just mean you know people you play video games with i mean people with whom you pursue the good and uh uh, share the gifts of the gospel and desire to become better servants and all of that so will's an amazing guy he's you know some people you get close to them and you know the gold comes off in your hands and some people just get better um and he just keeps getting better yeah that's a good way to say that that's a good way to say that. Uh, one of the one of the guys I talked to last, his name is uh, John Borman, um, oh. Air National Guard chaplain. Uh, I spoke with him for a little bit, and uh, one of the things that, that he wanted to talk about was pastoral loneliness, which ties yeah. into exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and I've experienced that. In, in ministry, and I've watched a lot of other guys experience that in ministry, and right. that is a that is a a struggle. I mean, that is a that is a fierce fierce fight when you are stuck in that deal. The 
the obligations of ministry are already pretty big, you know, and we don't have a place to channel off and take the collar off and be a normal guy or gal. Yeah, yeah. Real tough deal, you know. Well, and yeah, um, so I've pastored in rural settings and in urban settings and suburban settings. And um, one thing I've never really had is kind of uh, enforced loneliness where you really can't connect with anybody in your area. So even in rural places, I could find people um, that I could spend time with and be myself with. But I'm aware there'd be plenty of places one could be called by God to do ministry where you work really hard at it and you don't find those people. In another way, these technologies make it easier than ever to maintain a semblance of older friendships. So um, in that way, we're slightly without excuse, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I do think uh, I've learned a lot from Sarah Coakley, Anglican theologian, uh, Cambridge. Um, and she talks a lot about um, – practices of silence and contemplation. So there's a way in which I think we have to choose a certain kind of um, solitude, I'd say, rather than loneliness um, and move into that and become comfortable with that. Um, But then we also have to choose practices around friendship. Um, And often I find as pastors, uh, we we don't make time for either thing. Um, but I don't want to. I don't want to say being solo or being alone is ipso facto a bad thing. I actually think it has to be a chosen thing for the sake of prayer. But um, kind of enforced solitude, um, where you're trying hard to be a friend and you're and you're not having any success. Uh, I haven't actually experienced that, but um, but I pray for those who do. I mean, that's how we torture people in prison, right? As you put them in solitary confinement. I mean, it's a way of, uh, of killing someone's soul. So. Yeah. Well, it, it also puts me in that place of wondering <clears throat> how many guys or gals go into go into ministry and then they kind of function from a place of the occupation versus the person. Yeah. Sure. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. You see yourself as the answer man or you see yourself as the healer or the whatever whatever title you the preacher, the one who's the most pious or right. uh, and sometimes functioning from that place, not sometimes functioning from that place in, in, in relationships just doesn't just doesn't work. And I think there's a lot of people in there who I think they find the, the pastoral loneliness. Yes. And they get to that place because they don't know how to take off the mask or the collar or the or the robe or any of that. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, I mean, one thing I was struck visiting Kansas, my friend, uh, uh who teaches at Southwestern College in Winfield, told me when you cross the Oklahoma line, you cross out of Southern Baptist hegemony, right? Like in Kansas, there's there's other options, right? Like yeah. Yeah. south of that, it's kind of, they're more Baptist than people. And that's the world I come from, right? And in my own tradition, Methodism is a revivalist, pietist tradition. And uh, that comes with a kind of narrow circumscribing of allowed activities so you started out talking about tobacco and alcohol right like those are clearly out right and so is you know any cuss word worse than oh my gosh and um and i get all that because all of those things can be destructive um but they can also manufacture in us a kind of fakeness um where we're kind of ned flanders um all the time and one thing i've learned from will i think is a kind of is a more lutheran kind of piety that says uh you know, if anything, I'm kind of the worst sinner in the room, and I'm not going to pretend to be other than that. Um, 
I'm a little suspicious of that because our age really values something called authenticity, which I don't believe in. Right. Um, Lutheran piety was mediated to me by hundreds of years of tradition. So let's be clear about that. But um, uh, and but at its best, there's a kind of um, there's no pretense to be anything other than a sinner because Christ only saves sinners, right? Um, and that also allows you to look somebody else in the eye, not with judgment, but with humanity. And uh, not to say I'm better than you because I'm more religious than you, whether to a parishioner or to an outsider, but rather like, look, Jesus has the worst problems with religious people. So like I'm in more danger than you, right? Yes. Um, the guy who sells burger and beer to me and uh, burgers to my kids so we can watch sports here in Canada – um, figured out we were from a church and he said, uh, you, you guys must not like me. Like I gamble and drink and cuss. And I was like, Oh dude, man, Jesus loves you. Like who he's got problems with is me, religious right. leaders. Like right. all he does is yell at us all day long. Right. Um, but somehow we flipped that to where the church is like better than other people. And it's ridiculous. Yeah. When you say, when you say you don't believe in authenticity. Yeah. What? Yeah. Yeah. That's obviously a thing for you, so walk me through it. That's interesting. Yeah, no, I'm against it. Um, I mean, I get what we mean by it because we have these stereotypical roles that we see others and ourselves filling um, in a way that feels false. Um, and so, you know, I'm when I say I'm against authenticity, I don't mean I'm for hypocrisy, right, <laughs> or uh, conventionality. Um, but I, I think when people say they're for authenticity, what they mean is a kind of thoroughly modern claim that I'm going to look deep inside – and find there a self uninhibited by relationship with other selves, and that's who I really am. But there is no deep inside, actually. The only self there is is one that's always already entangled in relationships with other people. And so um, what I'm trying to propose is, is that uh, not only do we own that, which I guess is a claim for authenticity, but the thing to do is, is to find yourself in relationships with people who are holy, and by holy, I don't mean they don't cuss. I mean they love God, love the world, love their difficult neighbor, and uh, see what kind of self comes out of those difficult, demanding, disciplined friendships. Um, call it authentic if you like. I don't really care. But I guess what I mean is not that we discover ourselves by um, by kind of a romantic um, – interiority but rather if you like a kind of romantic exteriority like i'm definitely romanticizing friendship as the thing that makes you human i love it that's a, that's great that's really cool that's really <laughs> cool. and that's not a that's not a conversation i'm going to have with anybody else nobody else is going to care about that you do that's what makes this cool that's so cool so hey i while we're while we're kind of in this in this place we're struggling we're struggling with with naming this podcast so we're going to launch. We're going to launch uh, beginning of the year, and we're we're wrestling with a couple of different names, and we're not sure. And we were yeah. wide open to anything, uh-huh. even outside of what we're what we're looking at. So inside the homilist, the other side of preaching, um, the other side of the pulpit, which I think that's already a podcast. The other side of the pulpit, I think that's already uh-huh. a podcast. Uh-huh. So these are some names we're working with. What's your uh, what's your uh, what's your opinion? What's your What's your suggestion? Well, um, really hard, right? Yes. Um, so uh, I love Nadia Boltz Weber's name for her church in Denver, right? The House for All Sinners and Saints. Because um, I think it says really well what they're after. And um, I can't remember the name of her autobiography that put her on the map. 
shoot. Say the uh, name. What's her name again? Nadia Boltz Weber is her name. Oh, okay. Uh, but she wanted to call the book God's Bitch. Um, and uh, because for her, it was a Lutheran kind of claim. Like, I'm not claiming to be good here, right? I'm just claiming Christ is good. Yeah. Uh, and they said, no, you can't call it that. And so they called it something more boring, and it still was on the New York Times bestseller list. So, like, it did okay. I think there's a kind of hunger for an honesty about um, being human. Um, because our faith is incarnational, right? I mean, we claim that God becomes the most human one uh, and calls people like us who abandon and deny and betray friends. Um, anyway, uh, so naming. Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, I really like the Graham Greene image of the whiskey priest, right? I mean, so in The Power and the Glory... Um, there's nothing but a there's no pretension whatsoever. All this priest in Mexico is is corrupt and self serving. Um and then he dies. <laughs> you know, it's like let us not pretend anything has gone well in this person's ministry. Right. Uh, and then at the last, uh another priest turns up, right? Like, um God just keeps sending all the wrong people to all the wrong people. Um and uh and in the middle of all of that, like relationship that's christ-like and holy blossoms um so i don't know that's not very helpful i realize but that's that's okay i mean i'm just i I wrestle with it because look i'm not a real bright guy and so i kind of like oh i like that word it doesn't even mean that i don't care i think it's (laughs) you know so i mean it's funny if you think about restaurants at least up here they're all they all have obscure names bin 419 or like char or like Exactly. So churches have been doing that too, right? Like, let's get something obscure. I I guess I don't think it's a favor to anybody. Um, But somehow you do want a name that makes a kind of theological claim. And, you know, there I'm just sort of stuck. I've never successfully named anything. Like, none of the names of my books are I'm uh, particularly happy with. So I do like the names for my kids. So I'm happy with those. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you when you go naming your kids after your best friend, I guess it's not really uh, exactly right. Well. The thing, so my last name's this god awful thing that's hard to spell or remember. So my first two sons have clear one syllable names, Jack and Sam, right? Like everyone can spell those. And they're from the Bible, right? I mean, so we're going with John and we're going with Samuel. For Will, we ended up going with medieval English kings, right? Who conquered stuff. So we changed the rule out of biblical things into warlike things, but it's because of Williman, so blame his parents, I guess. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> well, that's the that's that's kind of where we're at. We're just we're just kind of bouncing some stuff around, like you know what's going to be, mm. what's going to be good, what's going to be catchy, what's gonna, you know at the end of the day, it's not going to it's not going to matter at all. It's not going to if it works, it works. If it doesn't work, the name doesn't stop anything from you know. Sure. I mean, it's like <laughs> I mean, farmersonly.com. Are you familiar with this with this website? No. no. Okay, it's a dating website. <laughs> All right, it doesn't. It's, there's advertisements all the time. That's got to be one of those deals to where, hey, I got an idea for a dating site. Well, I own a website, but it's called yeah, Farmers Exactly. Only. You know what I mean? It's like, I, it doesn't even matter. You know, which I'm not on Farmers Only. I'm just you know. Right. Not that you know anything about. No, that. No, I don't know anything about it. I just saw it on uh, television. That's it. So, yeah. I'll think about the naming thing. I mean, I, you know, I mean, yeah. there's a way in which, uh, like, churches naming themselves for whatever saint has been used less frequently like mm-hmm. there are all these anglican churches named for saints we don't know anything about saint bartholomew and like saint matthias and like 
whatever, they were just next on the list. So there was a weird way that I like sort of uh, studied non-creativity in naming. But I'm not sure how that works with podcasts. Yeah. Well, uh, it's interesting, you know, with when with churches at least here, you know, it's it's always something. It's the the gathering, right? That's one. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the journey church, the verge, elevation. You know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they have these climbing metaphors, right? You're right. (laughs) Yeah, it's always has something to do with you know, like a like some sort of venture we're going on. You know, right. It doesn't really work in Kansas. Yeah, no, not real. So <laughs> not what, real, not real I like geography. I mean, Methodists often name stuff for like local geography, trees and stuff. Yeah. I don't know. What would be appropriate to Kansas? I, I don't know. I mean, it I seems like know. everything's named prairie out there, right? Yeah, everything. High plains, you know, prairie, that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We'll, we'll make something up and uh, it'll stick and we'll move on and regret it later. <laughs> Call it uh, first podcast Iola, right? <laughs> oh yeah, if you, I just might call it Farmers Only. That's what <laughs> so, uh, so hey, listen, and I, I, when I emailed you, and and then when we chatted on the phone, I told you that I love, love the book. Thank you very much. It's such a cool one. Eight virtues of rapidly growing churches. Thanks, uh, and who did you co-write this with? So Matt Miofsky, who pastors a place called The Gathering uh, in St. Louis, not uh, too terribly far from you. So Matt and I were speaking opposite each other at a conference, and we found ourselves over drinks saying, you know, most of the mythology about fast-growing churches is wrong. And he's grown one, so he's saying this from the inside. So what would we say if if we said what's actually worth learning from rapidly growing churches? And my fear about the book is I don't want to make it sound like a formula. Like if you do these things, you'll grow a fast church. That's a perfect way to despair. Um, But rather, there are some. I mean, in Methodism, we got like five or ten. So like what is there to be learned from them? They're not better than other churches writ large or in the eyes of God, right? Um, But often they have captured something that the rest of us have fumbled. Um, in, in Methodism, um, we're really well positioned for the church in like 1830, right? Like, so we got all these little churches in these communities um, that were kind of still running on the fumes of the Second Great Awakening, right? Um, and in a way, that's beautiful. It's a kind of snapshot of pre-Civil War United States. In another way, like, well, I take this from Tim Keller, um, who points out that. Uh, uh, there are as many people living in New York City as there are in Georgia and South Carolina combined. So he asks, does your denomination have more churches in New York City or in Georgia and South Carolina? We got thousands of churches in Georgia and South Carolina, right? Um, uh, our whole world is becoming more urbanized at a frightening pace uh, with both glory and carnage there. And so that's where church needs to be in ministry. Now, we will still have churches in places like Aula that need to do excellent ministry. We should never abandon that. I wrote a book on the small church. I believe in rural churches. Um, Methodism is a movement that grows big by getting small. We never do it without small groups, uh, without face-to-face Christianity where we watch each other's kids, right? Um, So churches that do large well uh, are committed to that. Um, it's not just a big show for thousands of people, right? Like you can do that at the Canucks game here in Vancouver. Uh, it's uh, a collection of lots of small groups. That's just one of the chapters in the book. So thanks for reading the book, um, and I'm delighted if it's ever helpful. Uh, it, just just so you know, it didn't at all come off 
like a formula. Not at all. In fact, um, I think I may have mentioned this. I'm very cynical. Uh, in my review, in my review, I said this. I'm a very cynical individual, especially when it comes to the flash in the pan. Right. You know, every looks at here. You need seven these seven steps right here. And All you, you have, have to do is search, and you can overtake the next Walmart building that comes. That's about, right. You know, Anyone who's ever failed at a diet knows all that's nonsense. Exactly. You know, and, and when I see those, I, a part of me just, uh, you know, uh, I, I get pretty, pretty discouraged because I think, you know, you're setting somebody up, you know, because your circumstances and your location with right. your skill set and those people from that culture and somehow right. that's all translatable to this. And what I, and I didn't find that. I didn't find that when I read you guys' book. What I found was, Look, this is just a report, like a journalistic report. We pulled some stuff together and said, here's what people are doing. And for me, it was such a humble approach. I could, and I could embrace the book so much easier than coming at it like, I'm going to get this bastard. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go wrong with them, you know. That's and right. so, Thank yes, you, um, it was really good. It was really good. I'm really. I say was good. I'm enjoying it. I'm not done yet, but I'm good. I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah, you're, the, the last chapter could spoil the whole thing, right? No, uh, I, don't, I doubt it. I doubt it. It's so really I don't tell this story in the book, but um, the church I came out of to go into ministry grew – was a Methodist church in a college town, Davidson, North Carolina. And it grew from a few hundred people to three or 4,000 really fast. Wow. And um, – and, you know, the right answer to that, as Andy Crouch says, is when you hear a story like that, you ask, huh, when did they put the interstate in, right? Uh-huh. Like, you don't grow without people. Um, but uh, the truth is, plenty of churches fumbled that opportunity. So plenty of churches during that huge growth north of Charlotte didn't grow at all or shrank or only grew kind of by accident, right? And it's not that Davidson had the best plan for growth. In some ways, there was serendipity. They had a great pastor, um, he talks about it in terms of luck. I mean, it's not very providential, right? Um, but for him, he met the right people, and those people invited their friends, and their friends invited their friends, and the church managed to not screw it up too badly. Like, it's not, you know. Um, so there are things to be learned there, but for me, the church is always local. It's always particular. We have a God who gets born in a place and relates to people whose names we know, right? We have a God who delights in the particular and the topographical. Um, so one thing I loved about that book was the chance to go to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I mean, I've never been to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and get a sense of, oh, here's what it's like here. Here's who's moving here. Here's what they struggle with. And here's why this church in a town full of mainline churches that has fumbled this opportunity. Here's why this one church plant in Methodism has done really well here, right? Um, and every church also is like every human being. We're... We're full of uh, glory and pain, and uh, it's not that any of these churches are above that, right? I mean, Christ only saves through mercy ever. Are you or someone you know wanting to make a difference with your life, but you're not sure where to start? At Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri, they help students discover the kingdom assignment that God has for them and then train them to carry it out. Ozark prepares students for all kinds of Christian service, biblical communication, biblical justice, youth and children's ministry, counseling, missions, organizational leadership, worship and creative arts, and much more. Ozark's close community, Bible foundation, and commitment to service prepare students to take the gospel to every corner of the globe as ambassadors for Christ. And Ozark's affordable tuition offers a quality private Christian education at a public university price. Ozark Christian College. Your mission is out there. Your training starts here. 
Yeah, that's a uh, that's a good point. That's a good point. There's a there's a um, there's a sense in in a lot of church growth books that these things can be overlapped on any certain place. That's where, right. Place doesn't matter. I mean, I'm yeah, telling you, I, I've I've lived in several different places, and the place I live now, we live in a community of about five thousand people, and yeah. you wouldn't even believe this, but the arts are so big here. You that's know. Beautiful. I mean, we have, so we good. have a community theater, we have children's theater, we have two oh, dance companies, we have so the Bullis Fine Arts Center. We don't build a building in Iola, Kansas unless we can put a stage in it because someone's going to do something on it, you know? That's outstanding. And I'm telling you what, it's really, for me, it was kind of cool because when I moved here, it's like, you know, that idea that, you know, I'm a blue guy and I look around and there's nobody on the planet that's anything like me. And then right. I moved to this place and all of a sudden, like, there's all these artists and I was like, they're all blue. Like these are my people. You know? <laughs> it's such an interesting thing, you know. Because in preaching, you know, I'm not a good teacher. Uh, building on principles, you know, is 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 a difficult thing for me, uh, just because of the way my mind works. I mean, I don't stack blocks well, let alone you know, you know, principles. You know, and but there's so much more storytelling to yes. the way I preach. And when I came to a place like this, that the football team, you can be a jock. And you can be deb- in debating forensics. That's you know? a cool. You can be the quarterback, and then you can yeah. be in community theater. Like it's just where I grew up, anyway. It wasn't like that. Yeah, you had to choose. Absolutely. You remind me. I did a feature that hasn't come out yet for Christian Century on these two Anglican churches in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and uh, they had this amazing arts festival in Winnipeg. And what they found is artists in Winnipeg and artists in Iceland got along really well. And they realized, oh, it's because we're both islands. There's nothing in a thousand miles in either direction. And so we had to learn how to make our own music, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody wasn't going to come from somewhere else to entertain us. We had to pick up instruments. Wow. So your description of community theater strikes me as similar on the prairie, right? Like, hey, who's got a story? Like, for real. Like, no one's coming through town. Uh, and then you become a place that then has culture that exports it elsewhere. I, I just yeah. think it's so much better model than, uh, you know, let's just binge Netflix again, right? Like, that's cool occasionally. You know? Right, Absolutely. Yeah, and that's a, and that's such a that's such a cool thing. Now I don't know if you know, I believe it's in Winfield. It's one yeah. of the biggest one of the biggest um, uh, bluegrass festivals. How about that? I didn't know that. Ah, you need to look that one up. I can't remember what it's called. One of the biggest bluegrass festivals takes place in Winfield, Kansas. How about that? That's wonderful. Come from all over, and and it's very much what I think, like what you're saying. That yeah. yeah. There's a thing that people do in this place, and it's got attention, and people have shown up, and it's just okay. continued to grow. Yeah, it's really cool, really cool. So, I mean, yeah. I come from I come from the church I served most recently was in the Appalachian Mountains, and uh, there's there are certain cultural practices in those mountains that preserve things from Scotland and Ireland better than anywhere else in North America, right? Because if you were crazy or in trouble enough to move to the Appalachian Mountains, like you were isolated and so somebody had to entertain somebody else in your family right there's a reason entertainment happened on the porch um so uh that and then that becomes an incubator for gifts that are given back to the rest of the world so uh doc watson and merle watson and merle fest come out of a specific story and my sense is that uh, that's true of how culture works in general it's uh there's a dominant story that says it's piped in from Manhattan or Los Angeles. But then there's a more interesting story that says, no, if you pay attention, 
uh, and filter out certain kinds of loud noise, you'll see something quiet and beautiful growing right here. Look for that and then contribute to that, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's real good. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm, as I sit back and I think about, you know, Iola and the kind of the cultural, you know, for us, the, the uh, uh, high points or the things that we look at. And, and I've said it before in church that, you know, I love this place. And the congregation kind of looked at me like, you know, you should try other places, you know. Uh, <laughs> but it's like you come to a place and you go, man, this is my language. Like, it, right. like they speak my language. I speak theirs. And we didn't even know each other, you know. And this is what a good – now, I'm from Kansas. And so it's not to say that there's not other similarities. But not a place that's arts, you know. Not a place to where that is a big deal. And we're pumping shows in to the boldest fine arts center all the time. You know, talented people. It was really cool. Really kind of a cool thing. Yeah. That's awesome. My friend Trigby Johnson is the chaplain at Hope College in western Michigan. And uh, they get a lot of students from small towns in Michigan. And he's always having to tell the same thing. Don't be ashamed of where you're from. That's a place. It's a place with people you love and who made you. And then he'll say, just because you come from a place with a lot of concrete doesn't make you morally sophisticated. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Where I'm from in North Carolina, uh, uh, a a well-known novelist, Reynolds Price, and um, a president of the UNC system died in the same week. And somebody talked about small towns and said, uh, small towns are people estuaries. They grow souls. People can watch you from when you can first walk to when you're thinking about college. And some of those people are cranks, and some of them are the most beautiful people you'll ever meet. But that continuity allows you uh, time and space to fail, to befriend, to get your heart broken. Um, and, and in a way, I think that's what the church does that we don't see so much in the wider culture, right? Like human beings need things like youth groups where they can try and fail, where they can get hurt and hurt others and learn grace. Um, so back to your part of the world, um, Scott Jones is a Methodist bishop who's in Texas now, but he was in Kansas and Nebraska. And he has this theory about the polarization of politics in America where he says he thinks the problem is the decline of uh, Methodism in county seat towns. And it does, it's not just Methodism. It could be Lutheran, Baptist, whatever. But in other words, um, mainline churches in mid-sized towns used to be places where people who really disagreed sharply had to meet and make a budget and figure out how to give boundaries when their kids dated, right? Like you had to make life together. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's happened, it's not that those churches are gone quite. They're usually there. They're just kind of barely hanging on because those towns have evaporated, right? Um, I mean, county seat towns in general in America are really struggling. And so when people move away from them, they either tend not to go to church. That's the real story. Or they'll go to a church that's just like them. So they don't have to meet anyone different than them, right? Um, and so those skills atrophy over time, and you end up listening to the screaming on cable or the radio that most suits your predilections, right? So the skills around navigating with people you disagree with, those are still skills grown in small towns like you're in. Wow, that's good. That's a good theory. Scott Jones, you said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's uh, he's in Houston now, but he was in uh, – oh, I forget where their office – he was in Kansas, but I forget where the office is. You guys got three Methodist colleges in Kansas, right? Like uh, – like Kansas, we, Western, right, uh, Southwestern, and then there's a third one. Um, like again, you see the marks of where Methodists were 150 yeah. years ago. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 
Absolutely. You know what? That was one of the finest times. That was one of the finest times that I had in school. I went to Kansas Wesleyan University to play football. That's, That's so good. I didn't, I didn't go for any other reason, just to play football. And I didn't know what I was going to go into. I mean, yeah. I was trying to push that back as far as I could. Let's just go play football. And so I got there and I took a class with the lady, and I wish I could remember her name. Uh, she still may be there. Uh, but it, the class was Spiritual Formation. Yeah. So it was a uh, it was a it was a real cakewalk of a class, uh-huh. uh, and and that's the way it was sold. It was you know right. look any of you football, football players, players yeah <laughs> any of you football players are going to struggle and and uh, be ineligible. I'm going to need you to take spiritual formation. You know, go in there and sit down. You know, talk about your life and write the paper and you know move on with you know. Well, this lady she took us <laughs> she took us to a convent and and had us do a day of silence in the right. convent. Go lock yeah, yourself yeah. in. And so we're, I mean, you got all these football players that are just screaming and hollering and all this. And we get to the <laughs> convent and these ladies are like, like no more. <laughs> we will yes. hurt you. Right? Yes. This yeah. is like silence, you know? And so go in the room. And I remember sitting in that room and just like looking around like, there's no way in the world I can do this. You know, there's no way. She took us on, uh, I can't remember what she called it. It was a, um, I'm not going to use the right I'm not going to use the right phrase. Lack of lack of the right phrase. Uh, spirit, some sort of spiritual walk, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so she had us picking up rocks, and she wanted us to, you know, compare these rocks to where we were spiritually. I'm not kidding you. By the end of this class, these football players who are drunken idiots most of right. the week, right, right. this class, like, and, and like they're crying, and they come back from the convent, and they're crying, and they come back from. You know these classes, and they're crying. I mean, it was such a cool experience. You That's know, great. it was well done. It was well done. This yeah. buddy of mine uh, was a teacher at a Christian uh, school that was for kids who'd been kicked out everywhere else, and uh, so he took them to a monastery. And uh, they got done chanting psalms for an hour at three o'clock in the morning, and he heard one kid say to another, "Man, that was better than getting high." Wow. I actually think that's right. That monasteries. Sh- I mean, I, my own spirituality is pretty monastically formed. Um, uh, there's a way. There's a rigor there, a seriousness, and lots of our church life is so deeply unserious. Right. right. Um, I mean, if you think about uh, what we ask of kids in youth group, and it often just rises to the level of like, let's play dodgeball and make you feel guilty for having thoughts about sex. Right. Like. Um, but like, there's no reason somebody who's already reading the Diary of Anne Frank in school couldn't read uh, Bonhoeffer and wonder how could we have a church that's interesting enough that the police want to show up and shut you down. Um, and that's one thing monks have kept alive is, uh, I mean, a Catholic church has its problems like all the rest of us. But in a Catholic setting or an Orthodox setting or an Anglican setting where they have monks and nuns, you can say, hey, somebody's taking this seriously enough that they're going to give up on money, sex, and power. And if you're the kind of person, like most of us, who that's all you care about, money, sex, and power, you think, oh, there are other people who think those corrupt so profoundly that we need to walk away from them. That's interesting. Yeah, that may be crazy, but it's good crazy. Um, and in Protestantism, we need more good crazy. Yeah. The the other side of the shift is even even us in denominational churches – Tend to even look at the Catholic Church and say, "Man, that's even a little—that's even a little too weird for us," you know. You right. know, and that's and that's problematic because I agree. I mean, I grew up in a Christian church, um, and 
it was a growing Christian church. Just to give you an idea on, on the kind of place it was, a very interesting place. I grew up in a town called Tyro, Kansas, population 250 people. Okay. Uh, yeah. So through our life, through our life, uh, the church continued to grow. I lived right across the street from the church, and the church continued to grow. When I graduated college, the church was breaking a thousand every Sunday wow. uh, in a town of 250 people. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a re- it was a really neat. And here's the thing about it: it was a, it was a, I wouldn't say uh, progressive or what's the other word they always use when they talk contemporary, <laughs> but like a contemporary. I mean, the music may have been a little more contemporary. It wasn't, you know, the music was closer to the 1970s than it was, you know, yeah. the 1970s. I mean, it was a little bit. No, no, we're Christians by our love. <laughs> right. As the deer, you know. Uh, <laughs> we could go on like this for a while. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but watching that church grow and and seeing everything that was there, one of the things that really impacted me uh, was the number of men who came to this church and stayed in this church yeah. and took faith serious. That was a big impact on me because in in my development, what it did was it is it it convinced me that Christianity is not weak. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I come from mainline and liberal Christianity, right? And so most of our stuff on gender for 50 or 60 years has been feminism and has been um, – Anxiety about a certain kind of masculinity. So I I reviewed uh, John Etheridge and Wild at Heart really critically about ten years ago, mm-hmm. um, and and yet the question that liberals haven't really answered is what what is it that's making phenomena? And you know Etheridge and Wild at Heart is dated now, and so is Promise Keepers. But but what is happening there that people are finding life giving and grace giving? Um, because there's something to what you're saying, right? Like uh, Christianity, a lot of places is um, mostly women with mostly men in clergy roles, right? Like it says, oh, men have held on to that because, like, otherwise the church will only be women. Um, and what's what's going on there? I mean, um, and I don't have a good answer. I'm just convinced that um, what what the mainline usually does is criticize other people's answers rather than offer any of our own, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's something to what you're saying. I mean, I'm drawn to stories of martyrs and um, of missions, of uh, things at the edge where life and death are in stark terms. Um, and I don't know if that's masculine, but it's certainly not boring. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And uh, what to do with that quite? I do think um, – uh, one of the critiques of Christianity in, in the ancient Roman world was that we did gender wrong. Um, so uh, we had a Jewish Jesus who doesn't have children. That's already weird if you're Jewish. I mean, command one is you should go forth and multiply. Yeah. Um, we have a baptism that claims there's now no longer male nor female. Um, we have women in leadership roles, including deacon and apostle in the earliest church, right? Um, so it, like from the beginning, there was this contravention of what was expected on gender. Um, and so what would it mean to contravene now? I don't really know. On the main line, we mostly just parrot what we hear from kind of Democrats on this. Yeah. Um, in evangelicalism, there, there's a little bit more of a reassertion of kind of masculine Christianity. I, I'm not really sure. 
But I, I'm convinced that having no answer to that is unacceptable. I just don't know where to go to get it. Yeah, yeah. Um, when we when you begin to talk about um, gender and some of that within the church, it makes me think of and I, and we didn't have this conversation, but in our correspondence uh, with Will Willeman when he was connecting me to you, I was telling him. I asked him a question. I said, "Are you familiar with Jordan Peterson?" To which he said, "To which he said, no, I'm not." And I said, "Well, here's Jordan Peterson." And immediately, I think it was you who replied, "Listen, hold on, wait a second. You know, <laughs> it's good. Listen, I think he's doing a better job of making converts. If I remember exactly, he's doing a better job of making converts. Unfortunately, I think it's to you know paganism, you know, or right. something. Yeah, that's what something. I said. Humanism. Yeah. I couldn't remember what you said exactly. Yeah. Pretty um, close to the same thing. Yeah, but he does. He does draw a lot of lines on on gender no you're exactly right and that's probably the successor to the things i named right to the wild at heart phenomena and to promise keepers although both of those had um more explicit kind of sports and uh outdoors kind of stuff in them the, the peterson phenomena is partly a response it seems to me to kind of uh more muscular um campus-wide insistence on uh, destruction of gender binaries. Um, so if you're not allowed to talk about binaries, of course there's going to be a reaction to that that says, no, yeah, we are, and he's giving an outlet to that. Um, some of it, I'm sure, is that he's, I mean, the very form of what Peterson's doing, filling stadiums with mostly men who adore him in religious terms. I mean, we've done that. We invented that as evangelicals, right? <laughs> like. I mean, I recognize this because I've been on that stage, right? Like, we know how to preach that gospel. Right. Yeah. Now, he's, he's doing it without believing in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And so we have to say this is a pagan form of something kind of Christian-ish. Um, yeah. But it's not clear to me that the good news ought to be men can be men again and shouldn't apologize for it. Like, I don't know. I mean, Mark Driscoll had a version of that in Seattle for some yeah. years. Yeah. And it's big, right? And he had thousands of people. Um, and it ended up being just sort of fight club for Jesus, right? Where if you run down women, then like boys who feel oppressed will come to your church and high five you and, you know, like you'll get bro hugs and stuff. Like, again, Jesus doesn't need to rise from the dead for that to work. Um, and it's it's not surprising to me that Driscoll's ministry blew up. And and I used to say that I like I was interested in Driscoll because it seemed countercultural in Seattle. But a friend of mine said, no, that's not true. In any city as big as Seattle, 5 million people, a million hate liberal PC Seattle. Somebody's listening to Rush in Seattle. Yeah. So Driscoll's not being countercultural. He's playing to market share. Um, that's an interesting response. And God bless Mark Driscoll, and I hope there's some way in which – people get interesting when they fail to me. He I, failed. 100%. So in what way can God do something new with him? Uh, you know, um, Peterson, it seems to me, is peddling Gnosticism. I mean, he likes, the as someone said, the archetypes of Christianity, but not Christianity itself. Um, and now it's making him very rich and very famous. Uh, so again, we recognize this. This is exactly how evangelists rise and fall, right? And if you don't have a church to which you're answerable, then you're going to implode. Um, Driscoll had a church and still imploded. They, they couldn't do it. Even people who were trying to say to him, hey, this is not okay and not sustainable and you need to step away. Uh, he just said, man, I got more people than you do. Shut up, right? And yeah. um, so the fact that it's Jordan Peterson, like here in Vancouver, they had him debate Sam Harris, the new atheist guy. Mm -hmm. I don't care about any of them, right? Like 
I care about a Jewish Jesus risen from the dead, summoning a church from all nations. Neither of those jokers is talking about that. Right. Yeah. Super answer. Thank you, sir. Yeah. Uh, so here's the so here's the thing. I have this I have this deep admiration for Jordan Peterson, and here's my reason why. Yes. Uh, and I pray for him because yeah. when I first, when I first stumbled upon um, the very first video, it, and here's what was so interesting to me: the way I kind of come across him was it was it was some very boring conversation or it, it wasn't like the bandwagon came by and I was like, who is it? Who is it? Oh, it's Jordan. Yeah. Peterson. Oh, I'm a yeah. fan. I got the t-shirt. It wasn't any of that. <laughs> I stumbled up on something and I was like, that's an interesting, that's an interesting thought. Yes. And what he was talking about was that at one point he was an atheist and, and how that was still kind of close to him and he wasn't right. sure what to do with it. And then the next thing I knew, you know, a, a year later, it was like, I'm going to do a deal on the book of Genesis, you know, and I'm going to do this whole. And then before before long, I, I heard him say something like, really, the world is tied up in the logos. And that if we can if we can figure that thing out. And and then he made the phrase. Um, and, and I'm not talking about a resurrected, a resurrected Messiah, although I'm not ready to completely throw that out. How about that? And what was so cool to me was and this is. This is very much where, if I can use a cliche from our group of people, where where my heart really beats is watching people like you said. Yeah. They get interesting after they fail. I love to watch them on the journey. Yeah. You know, yeah. stumble into a thing, and then this thing turns into that thing, and then this thing turns into this thing. Uh, no, you it, could be right, and God God is not above uh, using that, right? I mean. Augustine has this thing about uh, Marius Victorinus converting, and he was a popular philosopher in ancient Rome. And uh, he said uh, at one point, um, "You've always," he said, "I'm a Christian without the church." Um, and and his respondent said, uh, "Yeah, that doesn't work. You got to get baptized. Like you got to join this sucky group of people who are failing to live this thing out." That's my gloss. Right. Um, and and Victorinus says that what? So the walls make you a Christian? Like mm-hmm. it? It's still a good rejoinder. But then yeah. at some point he realized, yeah, okay. It, and so the compromised little group of church at the time, the bishops got together and said, look, you're famous. You don't have to profess faith in front of everybody. That could be embarrassing for you. So we'll just have a little interview and a little private baptism, and uh, you don't have to tell anybody. I love that you know the church came up with a way to like soft-sell baptism to its most famous convert. Right. And um, and he said, no, I, I've taught pagan philosophy boldly and in public. I'm going to do this just as boldly and in public. And um, in the church in uh, – I can't remember now if it's Rome or Milan. But the church hearing that Victorinus had converted, there was this kind of murmur that spread like fire, Augustine says. Everyone was saying, Victorinus, Victorinus believes this. Um, and that conversion was really powerful for Augustine's own conversion, right? So like God is remarkably indiscriminate with who God will use and how. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't doubt there could be good that's coming through Peterson's stuff. Um, what, I, what I'm suspicious of is the form of Christian ministry without the commitment to it. And it's and I, you're more familiar with it than I am. It strikes me as a kind of Gnosticism. All we're interested in is the ideas here, not the flesh and blood. Um, but it sounds, from your account, like he's moving toward flesh and blood. So well, and for, uh, and God me, bless him. Yeah, for me, that's – I and I don't really – I don't really – 
engage in too many conversations to where I'm going to need to pull out a Jordan Peterson line and be like, yes, but. You know? <laughs> uh, but watching from a distance has always been a thing for me, and right. whether it's actors or musicians or, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I mean, anybody like that, watching from a distance. I had a professor in school who said, I don't know why, but I pray for Tom Hanks. He said, so <laughs> Tom Hanks movie comes out, I watch it, and I pray for Tom Hanks because there's something about him that God constantly lays him on my heart. Um, Jordan Peterson is very much here's the other thing that I see and this is completely off topic and ridiculous to even bring up I will occasionally um, indulge in um, the Joe Rogan podcast occasionally don't huh. judge me and don't turn off the Dude, uh, I, don't, I don't even know who that is I'm embarrassed to say <laughs> well he's basically like the bros Oprah alright uh. so yeah he's 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 I won't, I won't bash on him but he there are moments he has these flashes of brilliance you know and he's a provocateur uh all poking jabbing he just just insane just insane you know when i like him the most is when he's interviewing jordan peterson when he talks to jordan peterson joe sits still he doesn't laugh and joke he doesn't try to make fun. He doesn't try to provoke an answer, you know, something uncomfortable. He just sits and he listens, and and you can see him kind of ingest this information. And so I do appreciate his outward impact, but the thing that I appreciate the most is always watching his journey. And, and it just seems, to me anyway, from the outside, that he – like he's on this – he's on this trajectory that he's right. – I hope he meets the risen Lord. That's what I hope. Yeah. I hope no, that's you know, really good. Thanks. I got somebody to go look up now. Um, yeah, it's often the case among mainline liberals that by the time we notice somebody outside our world, like they're long since world famous. So I've tried to interest publications I write for into letting me write something about Peterson, and they're like, our, our readers don't care about him. Like, you're wrong, but whatever. Call, call me when you notice him, you know. Um, strange world. He, I mean, he blipped onto the screen in Canada here earlier than my friends in the U.S. were talking about him because of all the stuff at the U of T around gender pronouns and so on. Um, and, yeah, I, yeah, I've given you every opinion. Well, no, I got one other thing. So he does say pretty clearly that uh, liberals are inattentive to the history of Marxism and its human carnage. And I'm, I'm deeply sympathetic with that claim, right? So I often do bump into um, – people for whom religion has sort of caused all the harm in the world. And the immediate response is, okay, what about anti-religion, right? The body counts in the hundreds of millions. And there's often a kind of blank space there where it's as if they don't know what the Soviets did or the Chinese did. Mm-hmm. That was in the last century. You can you can meet survivors of those things, right? Mm-hmm. Like So uh, like Hollywood has never finished making these sort of Holocaust movies, right? Like for some reason we really like – talking about the Nazis, I think it makes Americans feel good about like our moral universe. Um, but somehow that hadn't, you know, like um, uh, Solzhenitsyn hasn't been the same gold mine for Hollywood in some way. And so people don't know about it. I don't get it, but I, I expect intellectuals should be able to do better than that. Um, and I hear some of those notes from Peterson. So I'm glad for that. I also hear though, a kind of, uh, if something's going to disturb someone, he likes to say it. And that strikes me as the kind of, uh, yeah, you're not hip or cool just because you piss somebody off, right? It, I mean, it, it has to be, at least for Christians, you not only have to tell the truth, you also have to love your neighbor, wash their feet, um, feed them if they're hungry. Um, now, in Paul, that's so you can 
keep burning coals on their head. And Jesus, it's so that you can die for them, right? So anyway. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Well, he's been a guy that, you know, I've kind of followed and, and just cool. watched and, and I enjoy, I just enjoy his journey. Not right. not so much what he's doing and the people that are gaining something from it. Sure. Uh, I've had those people in my life, you know, I mean, I have great mentors. I have great men, Christian men who are in my life. I don't need a Jordan Peterson, but man, I always think it's cool when somebody, I don't know that he, he even is aware that he's on this journey, but mm. it, from the outside, in my own imagination, I guess, uh, right. I watched like, I don't know if you know this, JP, but you're on your way. Like, you're going you're gonna to meet him probably right outside <laughs> of Damascus at some point, you know? You yes. probably got to tune in. So That's uh, interesting. Hey, yeah. let, me, uh, let me throw a couple things at you. I'm, I'm sure. curious. Uh, I want to talk, talk about writing uh, in a minute, but I I lost you for a minute there. All uh, right, sorry. Uh, do you follow any comics, any comedians? <laughs> you say yeah. um, I'm a Jim Jeffries fan, who you can't exactly play for the youth group. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I am impressed. Yeah, I I do. Comedians' timing and their um, finger on the pulse of stuff and their comfort without notes. I mean, I you know, I'm just struck at the brilliance but i don't I, I don't really have a specific one or two that i pay attention to it if i'm ever channel surfing and dave Chappelle comes on i'm watching him um so that's one uh and then uh key and peel amaze me but that's much more kind of sitcom set piece kind of work rather than stand up um so anyway you see the correlations you see the correlations um what do. do you what do you pull from that with the preaching and 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 stand up yeah. There's a, there's a, there's a, they're cousins of some sort. Yeah, I often um, people tell me my my preaching is funny, um, and uh, I, I never quite know what to make of that. Um, I do, th- I see things that I think are funny, and so I tell people them, but I don't, um, I don't think I'm trying to be funny. But I have noticed if I want to say something hard, um, I'm saying something funny right before it, right? And so the people I preach to, First Baptist here in Vancouver, have noticed that too. So they're like, all right. When we're laughing, we're actually getting ready to flex our stomach muscles because you're about to punch us in the stomach, right? Like, um, uh, there just just is something – this is one thing I've learned from Willimon. He has a kind of, if it's not funny, why would you say it kind of thing, right? Like, he's just unwilling to bore people. Um, And one thing comics do really well, they notice they will not go on too long without something funny, right? It's the whole point. Um, And so in my preaching – if I'm going on too long without saying anything interesting, like, okay, that paragraph has to go. Like, just reading someone your exegetical notes is not a sermon, right? Like, you have to land the way a comedian lands. Um, But then again, I mean, in one way, our stuff is not comedy, right? But in another way, the best joke there is is that a resurrected rabbi rules the cosmos. That's hilarious. That is absolutely hilarious. (laughs) I'm... My professor in school, Dr. Mark Scott, uh, he said um, in preaching, and I remember this from, I don't remember, advanced biblical preaching or something. He said, we use comedy sparingly, but purposefully. And what we do is we like to get their heads back laughing and then slit their throats. (laughs) Which is a little brutal sounding, uh, honestly. Uh, 
Yeah, Game of Thrones sounding. Yes, but but uh, but I do I do, and I don't know if that's original to him or um, he pulled that from somewhere else. But get their head back laughing and then slit their throat, and just as a just as a preaching mechanic, you know, that's I thought really that. Good. Yeah, I I like that. yeah. Uh, now I'll never be able to unsee that image. Thanks very much. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty, pretty coarse. So. <laughs> I mean, but the Game of Thrones reference gets me to the limits of pop culture. I watched that for a while, and I finally thought, you know what? I already hate humanity enough. <laughs> um, I'm not doing this anymore. I mean, the torture porn and all. Like, um, so I mean, there's a way in which uh, I feel my own traditions pull toward holiness tugging back like i don't really need to see that you know yeah yeah i can't uh i can't i can't get too far into that uh, myself you yeah. know gladiator russell crowe is just about as far as i can go yeah but, yeah that i'm willing to go that far yeah uh, once we got to 300 i was kind of like oh <laughs> i still got a spot for 300 but, I'm, well, but it's a good question where do you get off the train i mean i got off you know uh, during Game of Thrones, um, yeah, but I probably was already boiling alive in 300. So, yeah. <laughs> hey, uh, I saw uh, I saw on your uh, on your uh, school website. Yeah, uh, somebody had asked you a question: What students inspire you most, or what students yeah. do you love to have in your class? And yeah. I love your answer. Your answer was so good. I'm going to read it to you. You probably already know it, but I'm going to read it to you. Students haunted by Jesus. Delighted by his habit of showing up in surprising places, which is very much a, uh, a Will Williman idea. That's right. Yeah, um, and probably not original just to him, but uh, uh, being co-opted by the Holy Spirit in God's renewal of the cosmos. So the first line right there: "Students haunted by Jesus." This yeah. is what makes you such an interesting uh, interview. This right here, because if. <laughs> These people are thinking to themselves, you know what? We're going to send our kids off to school, and these kids right. think, you know what? I'm going to go be, I'm going to go to seminary. I'm going to learn something about Jesus because he's so meek and mild, and he's got feathered hair, you know, and he's such <laughs> a cool guy, you know. And then they show up, and and their preaching professor is saying, "I hope he scares you. I hope he haunts you at night, uh, like an apparition, like like you just yeah. that's." What I, and I enjoy that. I appreciate Thank that. Expand on this for me. Yeah. So the language um, it's rooted in Flannery O'Connor um, and her description already in the 1950s and 60s in the South of um, the South as a Christ haunted landscape. Mm. Um, and so her description was that you know the South thinks of itself as Christian. It's actually uh, barbarically post-Christian, um, and it doesn't know it yet. Um, but Right in the middle of that uh, landscape, Christ is on the loose, and he's more terrifying than he is comforting. Um, you know, so her stories always involve somebody's conversion, and they always involve uh, a violent conversion. So by the end of her life, she can figure out how to get someone converted without killing them, sort of. Um, so, and, and her description was, for people who are blind, you have to draw big figures, and for people who are deaf, you have to shout. Um and so this is George in the 1950s, where you'd have to work really hard to find a Buddhist, right? Um, that's not what she's talking about. What she's talking about is people who think they're Christian who actually know nothing about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and for her, it's pre-Vatican II Catholicism that has some uh, authenticity to it. You know, the rest of Southern Baptist Christendom in Georgia would have thought it was simply rank paganism and the Antichrist and all. 
Um, so here, I mean, we're a really liberal seminary. So we get really, uh, we get students who are seminarians from the Anglican Church in Canada, United Church of Canada, Presbyterian Church in Canada. Um, this has been a school that's been aggressively pro-gay inclusive for a long time. Um, and so often we'll get students who think, okay, we're going to have um, religion that's kind of super enlightened, kind of uh, in Canada, the NDP is the socialist political party, kind of the NDP at prayer. Um, and uh, and there I think um, what's interesting is the students we're actually getting are students who had some weird experience of Jesus they can't explain, some vision, some dream. They're not altogether happy about it, but they left whatever more lucrative career they were going to have, and their parents are disappointed with them. And and they do it because they say, look, I, this whatever happened to me, I need to understand it, and I want other people to have it happen because, uh, uh, man, it was weird. Um, so uh, I find those students immensely hopeful. So we have those – we tend to get white Canadian students like that, and then we tend to get – um, either indigenous Canadians, uh, that is First Nations people, America would you'd still call them Indians, I suppose. That's almost a swear word here. Um, and then people from uh, Africa and Asia who come from much more evangelical backgrounds. Um, if they had to do an exorcism, they would know how to do it, right? Yeah. Uh, and for them, kind of uh, the tail end of post-Christendom, European-descended white Christianity um, – that sets up seminaries like this has some interesting things to it, but really misunderstands their context. Right. Um, so a student from Indonesia, who's good in English, who's a Pentecostal, who's open to studying with gay and lesbian colleagues. What, what are we going to give them? That's actually going to help them do ministry in their own setting. And look, the answer for me is always Jesus. Um, so I'm often telling, um, white liberal churches, you say you want diversity, but all you've done is gotten wider and older. So if you actually want diversity, talk about Jesus. Mm. Um, if you want more white liberals, talk about diversity. Um, but if you talk about Jesus, diverse people will be attracted to him. So you'll get both Jesus and the thing you're not aiming at, which is diversity. Um, but in my context, that's that's the kind of direction I'm trying to push in. Yeah, that's a good point. Because you do talk about – when you talk about Jesus, that does bring about – I mean people from all over the place – I mean, Jesus is legitimately interesting, right? Diversity, you don't need the church for. You know what's what's crazy? Where we are in Kansas, um, it's probably a pretty even break uh, across where people used to go to church. Yeah. Uh, Southern Baptist seems right. to be one. Um, Mormon. Oh, interesting. Sure, you're far enough west there, yeah. Um, and Catholic. Yeah, 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 right. We have the occasional Pentecostal or two, but they uh, they can pretty much spot their own. And so when they spot their own, they, they tend to go find that group right. uh, and, and hook in with them. Uh, but but on occasion, on occasion that happens. But that's that's the majority of I would say maybe not the majority, but it's a pretty even it's pretty even cut. Yeah. Across that Mormon, Catholic, Southern Baptist, maybe the occasional, you know, uh, Methodist. um Presbyterian occasionally, but, yeah. but not very often. And and even age wise, it's it's interesting where we are that we have 70, 80 year old people and we have a boatload of young families. Mm. And the thing that probably the only thing we do, and I don't even know that we do it well, but the only thing we do is we spend a lot of time talking about Jesus. I mean, just that we just spend a lot and it does bring about uh, it does bring about 
diversity. That's a good point. And you and what you said, if you want to talk about, if you want to, if you want to get more, what you say, Democrats or, or liberals? Yeah, or, if you want more white liberals, talk about diversity. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's me trying to gig my own crowd, right? But um, I just think if you actually talk about Jesus, you not, not only never run out of material, he's endlessly troubling. Um, so if you notice people using Christianity for political gain in the U.S. at the moment, um, Jesus is not a frequent topic. <laughs> he doesn't help, right? Like, uh, uh it's really hard. The more you talk about Jesus, the harder it is to use him for some end you already have. Um, because the more face-to-face you are with him, the more he's going to confuse your topic um, and turn you upside down. So anyway, I just think it's the right way to go. Yeah. Well, hey, let me uh, let me ask you one more question before I get you, you off. I will, I will address the writing question in yeah. email uh, later Sounds on. Sounds great. So here's my, here's my last question. Um, if you've got something to give in the way of encouragement yeah. to the ministers who are struggling because of a lack of resources, the lack of encouragement, lack of confidence, right. uh, lack of time uh, to the guy in the rural place or even the guy in the suburban and urban place that right. you know uh, is feeling that pressure, um, what, right. do you, what do you tell them? How do you, how do you boost them? How do you put them back together? Yeah. Um, I mean, the answer is always Jesus, right? Um, but I don't want to let that be anodyne. So, um, I mean, the question is, we've got a text in front of us and a discouraging situation and a church that's nothing at all like we dreamed about serving. And what are we going to say? And the truth is, Jesus always comes to us through that text, through that discouraging congregation, through the enemy who's making your life miserable. There's not a deus ex machina. There's not a Gnostic secret end around. There's only this life that we're called to. And this is one of the dangers, I think, of a book like mine on the eight virtues of rapidly growing churches. Mm-hmm. I think we go into ministry like this because we think we're going to hit the jackpot. But again, in Methodism, we had like five that we could find that we could talk. I mean, we had 10 maybe, but um, right. most of us are going to serve ordinary places. Um, God got born in an ordinary place. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, God has this relentless love for the peculiar and particular and odd. That's why God calls a people as strange as the Jews, right? So Eugene Peterson here in this city was the one who said for years um, that uh, giant churches are prostituting themselves to consumerism and that the local and the particular are the only place where Christ reigns. I think that's a little too strong. I mean, we can also prostitute ourselves in the local and the particular, and God can use uh, something large. But um, I think the other thing with the with the discouraged person is to look for weird friendships. That is, um, not those that sort of normally come down the pike, but to somebody who nobody else in a Christian community in your town would befriend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, talk to them about things that matter. Um, so not just sports and the weather, but uh, Barbara Brown Taylor, great preacher and Mainline liberalism likes to ask people, what's saving your life right now? Um, I mean, if you can get someone to talk with you about something uh, non-superficial that's saving their li- your life, you'll learn from them. Yeah. So uh, there's a woman here in BC who I went to high school with, of all strange things, and we met up again here. She's not a Christian. She's sort of spiritual but not religious. She's a physician. And every time we talk, I learn something. Because in the church, there's this undertow where you only end up relating to other church people like you. Um, but actually, God 
has this big, wild, raucous world. So when you find somebody with whom you connect that's far outside the normal channels of church, like have your ears wide open for God and for things that will sustain your soul. Um, uh, so I keep quoting this uh, non-religious sort of spiritual but not religious physician in sermons that I've been preaching because she's teaching me a lot. She kind of got me out of my normal track. You know? Yeah. Good friendships for pastors often come from clergy from other denominations because you're not competing with them mm-hmm. uh, or from kind of weird religious people in town who uh, are willing to be friends with you or from like professionals in other fields. Right. So, I mean, ministers often talk about how miserable we are. I don't know. Is your vet not miserable, right? Like uh, your banker, um, the grocery store manager. I mean, they work long hours too, right? Like they're disappointed with how their life's turned out. Like take take them for lunch and ask them about that. So, I mean, one thing thing journalism does, like this podcast, is it does give you an excuse to ask people nosy questions. Pastoring does that too. I mean, actually people will like – tell you stuff they wouldn't tell other people because I don't know culturally they still think it's okay in some weird way so like ask the anesthesiologist at your local hospital what their life is like right um, it's not easy um, and then make sure you ask the person who's emptying the garbage in those rooms because she knows stuff no one else in the building knows yeah. um, so I think there's a kind of curiosity about life that is also close kin to writing well um, that I encourage for pastors um, the church by itself will cannibalize your whole time, right? They're jealous for all of you. And in a way, that's flattering because they, they love you and they want more of you. But you've actually got to kind of go out of your way to know your whole town and all its intricacy and all its oddball wonder um, so that you can then say something back to your church that your community wants and needs and knows and the church doesn't, right? So there's a weird way that sustaining your own soul and doing good ministry are related to one another. So I, I get nervous about talk of sort of how do you unplug how do you take the collar off like actually you're always a minister um but do it in a weird way like meeting with the weird artist in your town is ministry it's not time off i mean you're on the hunt for jesus who's on the hunt for both you and the weird artist and the church that's constantly disobeying him um so i don't know there's a grab bag of thoughts perfect i I thank you so much for doing this and this is fun would you be willing to uh, willing to sit down and do it again sometime? Let's do it. I'd be I'd I'd be delighted. This has been great fun to talk. Yeah, Mr. Biasi, I appreciate you so much. Thanks for what Thanks you're doing, you. where you are, I'll and I'll get a hold of you soon. I want to talk and to hey, you. About- so, but the next time I talk to you, I need to have read Jordan Peterson to have something smarter to say. So I'll do nah, it. No, no, no. Your thing on Jordan Peterson is perfect. That's all. That's perfect. <laughs> Who needs to read somebody before we have Who an opinion? Cares about AP. <laughs> Bless you and your ministry, man. Take care. Appreciate you. Talk to you soon. Again, my thanks go out to Jason Biasi for being on the show. If you want to see more of what Jason is doing, you can go to thehomilist.com, click on his picture, and we will link you up directly to his book list. Thank you for listening. If you want to subscribe, do it. But more importantly, share this episode with somebody. There's so many preachers out there that need to be encouraged, so spread the love. If you're preaching this weekend, know that we are thinking about you, we are polling for you, and together we are making a difference. So long.